The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In many ways, the Georgian era saw great achievements in the name of progress. But at the same time, others feared that it teetered on the edge of degeneration. This is something that Penelope J. Caulfield explores in her book, The Georgians, The Deeds and Misdeeds of 18th Century Britain. BBC History magazine section editor Rhiannon Davis spoke with Penelope about how we should see the complex and contradictory legacy of the Georgians. So Penelope, the subtitle of your book is The Deeds and Misdeeds of 18th Century Britain. Can we call the actions of the past misdeeds? What kind of standard should we hold the choices of our ancestors to, looking back from the 21st century? Hmm. Well, that is such a brilliant and really important question. And I spend a lot of time throughout the book discussing that. I certainly don't think, as historians, we should be just sort of patting the past on the head, oh, this is the good old days, or criticising us that these are the bad old days. We should be trying to look at the picture in the round and trying to assess both. What, what I do in the book is I assess both what people thought at the time and what we thought retrospectively. And we have to allow, obviously, that some standards change. But at the same time, just as in international law, we can say some things are just beyond the bounds of acceptable between fellow humans So you can say that retrospectively, not slapping people on the wrist, but but just saying this was a wrong turning for humanity. And the big, big obvious example of that is the trade in enslaved Africans. But when Wilberforce, the reform campaigner, the abolitionist, he made a wonderful speech in 1789 in Parliament saying it's not a case just of blaming individuals involved in the trade. We are all guilty, he said, because the whole of society is based on this trade, is using the commodities that come in, the the drinking rum and ruining their teeth on sugar. So that these are things that affect the whole of society. So I'm not saying deeds and misdeeds to, to sort of pat the past on the head or praise it in a simple way, but to say there are some big issues that transcend time the past and the present are interlinked. And actually, 
one could really say, great achievements of the Georgians and great crimes. I consider the slave trade undertaken by many countries over many centuries was a world crime. But I'm not trying to put people in the dock about it. I'm trying to explain how it happened, how people came to realize, and then also how people came to be awakened to it and to decide to do something about it, not just in Britain. After all, the northern states of the USA were among the first to try and ban the trade. And the, the Danes, the, Denmark introduced a ban on the slave trade. It wasn't a great slaving um, economy itself, but nonetheless, they were leading the way. So this was something that developed internationally, and it's the prelude to today's international law and today's convention against slavery, for example. And just to tell everybody, the Anti-Slavery Society says, let's finish the task that they began so we have slavery today. It's not just something in the past. And I think that we'll definitely touch back on that later in the discussion. But where I'd like to go next is you've mentioned Britain, British a lot in that answer. And this concept of Britishness develops in the Georgian period, doesn't it? Can you tell us a bit about that move away from the English, Welsh, Scottish, Irish personality towards this idea of Britishness? Yes, actually, that is so interesting. I don't necessarily think it is a move away from the British, the Irish, the Welsh, and the Scot. I think instead it's overlapping identities, that people can be both. And But certainly Britannia, the whole image of Britannia is developing in the 18th century. And you know, obviously there's the song rule Britannia, there's the Union Jack, which is proudly carried by the Royal Navy and so forth. But at the same time, for example, one of the things that always amazes me that after the Act of Union, 1707, technically the monarch is the is the King of Great Britain and Ireland, but we don't call them that. We still call the kings and queens of England. So, you know, the old usages carry on alongside the new. So I think old identities carry on al- alongside a new British identity. And in point of fact, there's an enormous amount of joking about the rival characteristics. And I don't think anyone expects them to be absolutely literal, but they're a sort of quick way of identifying people from the different parts of the British Isles. And I do have a talk for my students on the stereotypes of the Irish do this and the Scots do that. But I always have to prelude in myth, in historic legend, because one time I was doing this without any prelude and the student, I heard one of them saying as they left the lecture did you hear what she said about the Irish? (laughs) So I was saying, I have to make it clear, these are the stereotypes and they're jokes. And and I think they're a sort of like, sort of family banter, really. But of course, you have to be, and then they had to be very careful how they used these and people could easily take offence. But the old identities don't really disappear. I think that would be a mistake to think. But there is also a convergence and a sense of Britishness as well. And there's a sustained population boom in the long 18th century with more people being born, but there's also more people moving to Britain. What were the experiences like of immigrants who were coming to Britain? Yes. Interestingly, the 18th century is a period of terrific population movement in and out of Europe as a whole. Russia is expanding east and many of the other Western European countries are exploring around the world and people from around the world are coming. In my view, by the way, this is one of the reasons why 
Western Europe in particular is such a lively, inventive place in the 18th century because it's an international hub between the new world, which is developing explorations around the world and Europe and across Europe, Russia. You know, it, it, it's, it's a center of everything happening. But the answer is to what people thought when they came to Britain, it really depended very much who they were and what sort of experiences they had. Many of the Protestants settled in very well and assimilated very quickly. And we can tell even how for how many generations their families spoke the original language, the original micro- migrants, say, from France, the Huguenots or the German Protestants. They spoke in their family households. They spoke their own language for the first generation. Then the second generation would speak the original language in the home, but be speaking the other out. And then by the third generation, they're all speaking English. So they they move in quite well. But of course, it really depends on where you come from and whether you manage to set up networks of support and others in support of you. So some, for example, some Africans and some people via the Caribbean come to Britain And some have really not good times and write in their diaries how they object when everywhere they go, people are staring at them and pointing. But on the other hand, that wasn't the universal experience. It seems to depend, you know, it's partly on people's self-assurance and whether they settle in, probably money too, the more affluent, you know, can have a better lifestyle and so forth. But we have, you know, there were areas in Cardiff where, African and West Indian migrants would settle their areas in London equally. We might call them subcultures, except they were very integrated with the local cultures as well. And um, Dr. Johnson, for example, had um, a Jamaican-born, very trusted um, manservant. In fact, he, he was the legatee in Johnson's will of all Johnson's fortune after all the benefactions had been made. And this man, Francis Barber, was a perfectly self-contained person. And he has references to going out to pubs where there'd be other Africans and West Indians in the evening and having jolly evenings with them. And on one occasion, Johnson went out and he invited them all in. Johnson came back and found them having a lovely get-together in the main parlour. So you know, it depended really on where you were and in what circumstances. Um, but I spent particularly traveling to places, to small places that weren't used to outsiders. There was much more risk of exclusion and hostility. But again, there are some accounts of Scots coming south were not always welcomed by people on the Great North Road. And I myself, as a as a teenager, hitching in Greece was greeted with hostility in a very lonely village. I was wearing the wrong sort of clothes and behaving in the wrong sort of way. So it's partly strangers rather than racist feelings as such. And many of the um, people, many of these people coming into Britain ended up marrying Brits. And it's, it's really quite interesting to try and trace. We can trace their descendants in Britain today. And because of the way you know, genetics work, some have lighter skin, some have darker skin. It, it just depends on the process of genetic inheritance. But there's there's a tremendous fusion of peoples, actually, and I think that's part of the excitement of what's going on in the 18th century. Mm. And it is really this time of, of travel and moving, isn't it? Because there's also lots of people who are 
leaving Britain and in particular Ireland. Can you tell us a bit more about why people chose to leave, particularly with the example of Ireland? Yes, there's some big studies now of migration and the crucial distinction between those who are voluntary migrants and those who are leaving after disasters in their own terrain. And we'll come on to that latter category in a moment, but many of the people, it's often youngsters who are the ones that want to leave and explore the world. They may be traders or missionaries or simply explorers or in the army or navy. And there's quite a lot of study of their letters home. You know, they write home and it's very interesting as a, as a mechanism for informing people in Britain about the world. So there's quite a lot of joyful expansionary emigration, not always greeted with the same joy by the pe- people in the countries they're emigrating to. But from their point of view, it's a big positive move. As I said, to associate it could be with trade or settlement or missionary work or a whole variety of things. But then there are also some big, well, semi-enforced migration. When I say they're not enforced by the law, but they're enforced by disaster in their area. And these are by regional disasters. And these are often the source of tremendously sad songs and laments. And the, the migration from the highlands after the failure of the second Jacobite rebellion. The laments of people that left from Scotland are really quite heart-rending. There's wonderful music, but you know, with an undertow of great sadness. So there's the, the sad emigration as well. And there's a lot of commemoration of that too, monuments to this, and people creating their own rituals around it, of rituals of memory, which is also very interesting. And it, the end of the well, no, throughout the 18th century, there was a lot of emigration from Ireland, a lot of it to mainland Britain. And that was partly the joyous emigration as well, people just in search of life and adventure and better paid work. But some of that was the res- result of poverty because the Irish population growth was one of the greatest anywhere in 18th century Europe. And so there was a lot of underemployment and unemployment and people looking for work. But the really And there were local famines in Ireland that people moved around Ireland and to mainland Britain. But the really tragic emigration is just at the end of the long 18th century, as I call. I study from the 1680s through to the 1840s. And just at the end of that, the Irish famine, drastic population loss just from death and disease at home and then emigration. And staggeringly, the Irish population has still not yet got back to the level it was in 1840. It's a really staggering thought, given all the population growth of the 20th century. So that shows how large it had got then, and then the pressures on an agrarian economy. And again, one of the things there is a lot, there are complaints, there were complaints then, and there've been a lot of criticisms after to it, how the government in Britain and landowners in Ireland coped. And I'm sure they could have done much, much better. But it remains the case to this day that the world is not really very skilled at rebooting an entire economy if there's a complete devastating famine. So it's a very difficult task. Though, again, it's still worth studying what they did and what things could be done better. And you can learn from that very much so. But anyway, so there's these different strands. um, But it means the diaspora of British people 
enormous around the world and their descendants. And there's a lot, a lot of commemoration. The Scots, in particular, have the annual Scottish Day, and you know, they, they, and you know, it's a major, major force in world history to this day. Do you think the Georgians intended to gain a formalised overseas empire with a British monarch as as the emperor at its head? No, I don't. <laughs> uh, and I, I have written about this. Um, and of course, until 1876, there is no British monarch is an emperor. And when Victoria is made empress, she is made empress of India. And there was quite a lot of debate in the House of Commons as to whether she might be emperor of Great, empress of Great Britain. And there was a lot of resistance because it is uh, considered as a more more absolute form of rule, and they did not want that in Britain. So no, there was no sort of master plan. And one can give some examples of that. There was an expansionist mood, though. So when the young Vancouver arrives in Hawaii in the 1790s, he plants the flag and claims Hawaii for Britain. But nobody tells Britain, so the claim is entirely lapsed. You know, no, nothing happened from it. So there wasn't a sort of master plan of all our soldiers and sailors immediately send a message back and we claim it. It was much more, but it, that, that does show something about their cast of mind, though. They were a very confident assertive um, power and didn't have any inhibitions. After all, the world wasn't divided up into sort of separate nations with national boundaries. So they were quite ready to claim territory, which they thought of as free and available. So there's certainly, I would say there's an expansionist drive, but I don't think it's a master plan. And I don't think anyone really, any specialist in imperial history would believe that. And the term empire initially is used more of commercial empire. There are songs about you know, Britain's empire over the seas. Well, as in rural Britannia, Britannia rules the seas, but not a worldwide empire. But as they expanded and the different forms of rule had to be consolidated and organised, it did get much more settled and more formalised. And I certainly think, for example, the British Empire in India was far more formalised and socially repressive in the in, in terms of relationships between the Indians and the Britons than it was in the late 18th and early 19th century. Not that it was perfect then, but it was much more free and easy because, well, for a start, there were fewer Britons there and many of them didn't have their wives. They often said when the Mem Sahibs came, there was a much more formalised society. But there's an enormous amount of intermarriage between um, Brits and Indians, not, not only men marrying Indian wives, so that was quite a common, but some, some the other way, and a lot of migration to and fro. So you mentioned India. Let's continue to talk about that, uh, particularly in the Georgian era. How are the Georgians viewing Indians and how are they viewing the Britons who go to India to make their fortunes? As in many situations, there is quite a division of opinion. Those who seem outwardly, from this is from the British point of view to start with, those who seem outwardly successful and who come back rich are admired but on reflection, you can see also people beginning to wonder. So many of the people who buccaneering traders who make fortunes 
come back and they're teased as nabobs, an Indian word for a grandee. And there's a lot of anxiety that the nabobs are coming back with too much money and are corrupting British society and buying seats in Parliament. So there's quite an early on, there's quite a lot of unease. But it's not always the same people who are being uneasy as those who are cheering on the developments. And on the whole, traders tend to be, right, if there's trade and money to be, let's go for it, rather as in the slave trade. And others are saying, well, hang on, what about the social consequences? So um, the most famous example is the impeachment of Warren Hastings, the first governor general of Bengal. But when he comes back to Britain, he's put on public trial and the most riveting speech, it's in Book of World Famous Speeches to this day, is made in accusation of him by Ed, Edward Edmund Burke, the Anglo-Irish politician and political theorist, a very, very powerful speaker and writer. And he made this prolonged accusation of against Hastings, denouncing him in the name of the Indians, of the Britons, and the world, and world public opinion. I mean, it's really extraordinary talking about whether there are world criteria. He's invoking them. And we have on record Warren Hastings' reply when he heard this comment, private comment, when he heard this speech. He, he wrote, good God, when I listened to this, I thought I was the most guilty person in the universe. It just shows the power of Burke's oratory. But, um, of course, Hastings then countered by saying, you know, he had he hadn't done many of the terrible things, and he had authority for many of the things he had done. And of course, there were accusations about hardships for the Indians. And Hastings would say, these are not something I can control. Of course, he could control taxes, but he couldn't control famines. As I was saying, actually, you know, the view that governments can simply reverse famines, mass famines, is difficult to do today, but very, very difficult then. But Burke's accusation was was really trying to establish a set of criteria. It's a wonderful, wonderful bit of oratory, even to read today. So people are divided. Incidentally, the government played for time to defend Hastings, and in the end, he was acquitted. So, you know, there's vice versa. There's some people who think all that's going on is is going too far, and there are other thinking, no, we must. If there's trade and money, we must go for it. And there was a bit of a power vacuum in India, which sort of sucked the Brits in. But the, in the early 19th century, things changed a little bit because the empire, the, the British rule, well, it wasn't yet called an empire, but British rule began to be systematized. And British officials came out and tried to organize and administer. And they, the, there was a liberal strand of opinion as well as a sort of acquisitive commercial strand, but a liberal strand thinking, oh, well, this is our chance to do good. And the empire, or initially our settlements of what became called the empire, can be a force for good. And they tended to view the Indians as a backward society who, whose ways, you know, who bring them literacy and education, a greater role for women. So there was, there was a, eventually there was a liberal strand of support for what was going on. And the sort of thing that they stopped, which I'm sure we would all wish to stop today, just as they wished to stop then, was sooty when the the widow would throw immolate herself and on the burial pyre to die. This was of course there was no no pension, you know, no family savings. So it was a way of, of saving for the family, but it was horrible for the 
woman, needless to say. So they did stop that, for example. They stopped Suti. So there was a liberal strand of reform. And so one of the things I emphasize, it's a changing package of feelings all the time as you go through, changing package of whether Britain is taking wealth from India or investing in India. Quite a lot of investment goes into India. It's a continuous dynamic all the time and differing responses from Indians. Some of them welcomed what was happening and some worked with the missionaries and were keen to develop the schools and bring education to people. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the transatlantic slave trade in the Georgian era, because slavery is happening, but there is this growing abolition movement, as you said. Why do their opinions towards slavery change? We shouldn't blame the Georgians too much, but we shouldn't praise them too much in the sense it took quite a long time for opinion to change. It didn't change just like that. It takes quite a lot of education and effort. So it, it began to change because various specific groups, the Quakers were among the first, the equality of all. They were always anti-slavery. Quite a few people who went on the slave trade were actually revolted by what they saw and came back and campaigned against it. So Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, you know, the hymn, which is still sung, Amazing Grace, it has this line, I was blind, but now I see. So you know, he had a conversion. So some people were suddenly converted. And then a lot came through pressure and persuasion. And there were enormous numbers of local pressure groups, societies, associations of and campaigners as the century went on. And what they're basically trying to do is to alert people to what's going on. And Cooper writes a, the poet Cooper writes a very interesting poem about ordinary people who drink their rum and use sugar and ruin their teeth, by the way, but they do this sort of knowing half at the back of their minds that there might be a problem attached to it. But they don't consider it from day to day because they like their rum and sugar too much. And I think probably a lot of people like that, they semi-knew, but they hadn't conduct, brought it right through to their own behaviour. And the abolitionists were trying to do that. So they had all sorts of tactics to do in their poems and pictures, graphic pictures of bodies stacked in the ships and um, the appealing slave, his hands in manacle, but appealing, am I not a man and a brother? Africans and West Indians today don't like that. And I can understand why. But at the time, it was an appeal. And on the other side of the coin, by the, that was a, an abolitionist token, the picture of the, the appealing, you know, am I not a man and a brother, appeal to universal humanity. On the other side of the coin, the, the abolitionist token, there's two pair of hands shaking. So it's trying to alert people to universal humanist values. And eventually, you know, it's extraordinarily interesting, not just Denmark and the northern states of the USA, but Britain legislates to stop a trade over which the government had no power. It didn't run the trade, but it's just asserting this cannot happen under our authority. So it is actually regulating the terms of trade. And it's one of the first examples of massive court. Now there's an international set of regulations which regulate trade, but this is one of the start. And very interestingly, having taken that step, they then set the British Navy to disrupt other traders, to stop them, you know, to police the high seas. So it is a complete change and it took a lot of pressurizing and you know all credit to the to the abolitionists. People like Wilberforce devoted his life to that. And at the start he was satirized as a you know a foolish man who didn't understand the realities of the world. And he lived long enough to see 
the cause begin to triumph. And the moment they got the slave trade abolished, the campaigners moved on to try and abolish slavery itself, which is a bigger issue. But again, they got that through eventually, even though there were problems in the way they, big problems in the way they did it. But nonetheless, it's still something for a government to say, if you're under our authority and part, part of our uh, under our hegemony, as it were, you, this shall not be. So it's, it's a big attitude change, and it took an awful lot of campaigning to get public opinion, which at first was hostile or unaware, and then to swing into putting the pressure so that eventually government felt they had to act. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, to read that Horace Walpole was stopped outside London and robbed of his fob watch by a gentlemanly highwayman who quoted some Latin at him. You know, the, that all, all seems quite charming. But, of course, today we wouldn't like it if we were held up on the A30 <laughs> and robbed as we were trying to drive into London. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. And changing topics now, the Georgians have quite a steamy reputation. And you write that there was a sexualization of British social life and culture in the Georgian period. We have more people exploring their sexualities. There's a rise in children born outside of wedlock. What led to these changes? Yes, one colleague, in fact, goes as far as to call it a sexual revolution. But I, I wouldn't go that far because not not everything changes and in fact in social and cultural life things tend to change more slowly than a like a big political revolution but nonetheless there's a real sort of lifting of the lid on people's sexual interests and behavior and it's to do with the freeing of the press the lifting of the licensing laws so the press this press isn't completely free there are laws of libel and slander but it's much much freer it's partly the lifting of the press. So it's, no doubt people have been interested in these questions long before the 1690s. But when you lift it, it's discussed much more. And when, when it's discussed much more and much more overt and public, then people develop ideas and become explicit about things that they would have been hesitant about before. So that's part of it. It's, it's the freeing of the press and the most amazing things you can find in print in the 18th century, some of them make modern readers blush, <laughs> a frank sexuality. But also, it's the decline in the powers of the church courts. Before the civil wars, the church courts had tried to regulate a sort of moral behaviour. And the church courts continue, so they don't completely disappear, um, but their, their scope and their control over day-to-day -day business is very minimal. And so it's partly what we call polymorphous human sexuality, the diversity and variety of human sexuality 
but it's much more in the open and we know much more about it. And then because it's much more cultivated, people take a freer and easier attitude. Mm. And something that we know about are men's clubs. Can you explain to our listeners what these are and how popular they were? Yes. Well, and actually there are women's clubs too, but this the 18th century is a great, great era of clubs and societies. It's partly sort of like the question of, you know, what do you do in your evenings when you're not watching TV or listening to the radio? But anyway, even in the era of TV and radio, people go out enough, they get out to pubs, but they also set up their own societies. So the societies could cover absolutely everything. And there were learned societies and this and that associated with sports, you name it, and scientific research clubs, et cetera, et cetera. But some of them were sort of drinking and chatting about and enjoying sex. And we have accounts, for example, that um, say a nude woman might be brought on and revealed as they would be chatting about sex and women and so forth. I don't know whether actually they did brought on men in the gay clubs. I don't know that. But anyway, there were molly houses and areas for gay men as well. Uh, not so much for lesbian ladies, though we know about them. There certainly were some, but their, their, their actions were not so public. But of course, it's the what actually goes on in these clubs is not perfectly documented. And that's an area actually where a lot of interesting research is being done now. But I suppose the basic point is that I, I call this an era of experimentation, and the clubs and societies are one way of finding another group of people with common interests and sharing them. It's a little like a sort of mini, is this going too far, but mini universities, as it were. You, you know you get such a lot from university from talking to others and finding people with common interests. Well, the number going to university in the 18th century is tiny, but these are little like self-educating clubs, and I, I don't mean to put them all in the sort of highest intellectual levels. A lot of them may be just jollification and sharing, but of, of common interests. You know, so there's hardly an interest you can think of that isn't covered by some club or other. There's hundreds and hundreds of them, and it's, a, it's very fertile, and it's a way, I mean, it's one of the ways we know that early scientific ideas were spread. So, and, and some women were involved in these, no, not as many, um, but some societies allow women in, some debating society, and there are one or two all-women societies. Though, again, they tend to be less documented. But the more we look, the more we find. So I wouldn't be surprised if much more turns up. The, another factor that's aiding all this, by the way, is the spread of literacy. It's a period when literacy at all levels of society is increasing, including among women. And you mentioned gay clubs. How are attitudes to same-sex relationships changing in the Georgian period? Officially, not much. The laws are still very, very tough on this. Um, although, when is the last hanging? I think it's in the 1830s. Over time, we find the law is being enacted with a little less rigour, more like imprisonment or banishment. I know that seems pretty tough rather than hanging. But the interesting thing is that far, far from all cases of known gay men in the 18th century end up in front of the law. So the, the, the legal penalties 
are a great source of uncertainty and anxiety for everybody because the law is, and this is one of the things that reformers point out, the law is administered so arbitrarily and so that it's, it's really unfair. You know, if you're going to have proper penalties, they should be equal. But an awful lot, including a number of famous people, but an awful lot of local clubs and individuals are getting away with it. So I think in certain areas and certain times, you know, the centres of the big cities and so forth, there's much more de facto toleration. Though if anyone offends by behaving in a controversial way, then they can easily whip, a crowd can easily be whipped up against them. But in the case of legislation on sexual matters, it's very notable that behaviour tends to change long before the law changes. The law waits quite a long time. Politicians are, are worried. Well, and theologians, of course, are always strong against um, the, these are sins and so forth. So it's, if you look at the history of something through the legislation, it appears far harsher than it is. But that's still not to say that if we were then, we'd have been campaigning to change the law because it's so arbitrary and unfair. Mm. And it seemed that in reading your book, if you were from uh, a higher class, if you were an aristocrat and you were engaged in an affair or you were having a same-sex relationship, you weren't condemned as harshly as if you belonged to a lower class. Uh, but however, there are still some scandals that rock the upper classes. And one in particular I wanted to ask you about was George IV and his wife, Caroline of Brunswick. Can you tell us a bit about their relationship and why it was so controversial? George IV is a wonderful instance for historians about how <laughs> inappropriate behaviour in a role can really put the whole institution at risk. And George IV was just not a very seemly monarch. And in the history of British republicanism, which was a, a covert cause, it, still dating from the mid-17th century, but it waxes and it wanes, and there still is a republican society to this day, but probably republican feeling was at its height in the 1830s under George IV. And he, his own behaviour and his extravagance and his his, really, his failure to play by the rules publicly. I mean, plenty of monarchs were sort of playboys quietly and in secret, as it were, but he was sort of flamboyantly and publicly so, and spendthrift. You know, people didn't like that either. And his wife was never a happy marriage. She, they were, it was an arranged marriage and it was unhappy from the very first night. And they both expressed what is the word, they both expressed displeasure with the other's person. So it, it didn't succeed at any level. But as things went on, again, I've talked before about divisions within British society. So the, the more traditional forces in society tended to rally behind the monarchy. And monarch was a head of state, head of the army and head of the church. So they tended to rally to that. Whereas the opposition the more radical, those who wanted changes, the sort of people who would favour abolition of slavery, for example, they were rallying against the monarch. And the Queen Caroline, who had an easy, open, friendly manner, became a public 
symbol of of opposition to monarchy. And again, in the long history of marriages, royal marriages, there are many, many examples, as we know, of um, relationships that go wrong. But it takes something to make it also a public issue rather than just a source of private grief. And Caroline, Queen Caroline became a figurehead for, I mean, she, I wouldn't say she was the cause of radicalism, but she was used as a figurehead by the radicals and, and also um, for debates in Parliament. And this was an example of where a, matter, a court matter, if handled badly, can become politicised. And what is staggering is the range of public support for you know, an unloved queen. It, it is quite interesting. When she died suddenly, um, just after the king's coronation, when she'd hammered on the doors of Westminster Abbey trying to get in to join the chorus, coronation and been turned away, she died suddenly. There were fears that she'd been poisoned. But anyway, the, was, there was a cortege. She'd asked to be buried back in Germany. There was a cortege to take her coffin to the ports and, and out of the country. And it was initially decreed it should not pass through central London and the, for fear of crowd support. And the crowd was so outraged that it prevented that and forced it to go through. Uh, you can think of other parallels of funeral cortages and public displays. But this was an example of how monarchy is not just something, as in many earlier eras, operating at the top of society, unquestioned and un reviewed, but now it is uh, uh, has a role that is under constant public scrutiny. And after George IV, all monarchs, all monarchs learnt the need for public decorum. I can imagine. <laughs> um, and something that I found really interesting in your book that I really had no knowledge of was the changing attitudes towards disabilities in the Georgian era. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Again, uh, very interesting because it's part of this. There are, we might say, there are conservative strands of thought, liberal strands of thought, even radical strands of thought. This was very much a liberal good cause, with especially with increased education and, and literacy. They suddenly realised that all sorts of disabled people had all sorts of skills, and you know, it, 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 the right thing therefore was to care for them and improve their education and allow each one to develop to the full rather than, as in older traditions, laughing, jeering at them. Again, we have to be a bit cautious because we don't know literally that everybody in earlier times was actually laughing at everybody. But the literature, there are lots of jokes about, you know, if you see a blind man walking, then direct him into a wall and then laugh as he (laughs) hits himself. That's supposed to be funny. Um, Whether people were really doing that is, is another question. But by the end of the 18th century, people would think that's absolutely terrible thing to do, you know, so there are schools, there are all sorts of things, schools for the blind, and uh, some blind, the, the blind astronomer I mentioned in my book, that, who's celebrated the plaque in York where he came from, you know, made some notable discoveries. So it was just a realisation, it's part of this humanist, the value of every single individual. So I wouldn't say again that all behaviour changed just like that, and there are always problems to overcome in getting the right sort of help, and the, you know, the one-to-one help can be very expensive, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it is not just a simple rah-rah progress story, but nonetheless, it is very interesting that when resu- when attitudes start to change, and then when 
in the 18th century, there's quite a sort of fulcrum, a, a turning point when, as I say, the actual systems of help don't really improve just like that, but it's suddenly realized that there are skills and talents in everybody and that all ought to be helped and developed. It, it's quite inspiring that this change in attitude happens, though, as I say, it takes a long time to get it to come true. And there are many aspects like, um, well, sorry, this is getting on to later cause, but you know, treatment of abandoned children, for example, which still remains a problem to this day, you know, to get the right amount of social care for all the levels of help that's needed. But a sort of model, I use the image of the beehive, which is a very common one in the 18th century, sort of that the bees must all work together to be a happy, contented hive. It didn't always work, but it's a nice image, a sort of caring image. Mm. And you've mentioned changing attitudes and attitudes towards the classes of society are changing as well. And there's one particular way that I wanted to ask you about this, one example you give, which is the gin craze of the 1730s and the 1740s. How is that used in the class debate? The gin craze in the 1730s and 40s was partly a product of successful agriculture because grain was very cheap and so gin was very cheap. And it's, it wasn't that people suddenly all let their hair down and began drinking gin in unprecedented numbers. This was an era, by the way, when people didn't drink much water because water wasn't um, clean, cleansed. That was something, again, the 18th century was gradually working on. But they used to drink beer and gin and the upper class is wine. But when the gin was very cheap, it, the use of it did spread like wildfire. And eventually they had to bring in regulation of gin shops and and, and ex- raise the excise on the cost to, to control it. But then there were accusations that it was, you know, the poor were forgetting to work and forgetting their duty and forgetting decor- decorum and <laughs> hierarchy and not acknowledging their their betters, et cetera, et cetera. And worse still, women were taking to, women and servants were taking to, to drinking gin. So quite a lot of comic attitudes come out of that. But it, it is quite an interesting episode, both for the history of consumption, but the history of social attitudes. And you did refer as, as to the long-term shift, which I document, between talking of a society in terms of ranks and degrees and very clearly graded hierarchies in society into a looser, more general language of class. And that is often thought to start in the 19th century. But in fact, that's not true. I've chased it well back throughout the 18th century, though for a long period, both ranks and classes are used side by side, but gradually a looser concept of class emerges. And I would stress that one of the early ideas of class was that classes might cooperate. It wasn't necessarily viewed in a Marxist sense of class conflict, but there were bigger, broader groupings. But in time, rather as like, say, in the Indian Empire, in time, this becomes more formalized and class can then become a source of oppression. Whereas in the 18th century, it's a relatively liberating language rather than the strict hierarchy of ranks and degrees. You know, they had 26 or 27 ranks, you know, all graded down and everyone should know whether they're above this person or below the other. 
All of that is going, just a few big, broad classes. No one ever agrees exactly how many classes there are, but eventually three, very broadly three, upper middle working can come out, though, of course, you can have upper middle class and middle middle class, lower middle class, etc. But then these begin to acquire their own formalities, and then those come under attack in turn. And it's not really quite clear now how we do describe society as a whole and what model we have. But anyway, the old one was the sort of a ladder from top to bottom with everybody knowing their place, and it's moving into a looser, like a looser set of confederations that may work together or may oppose each other. And how, yes, we got onto that from, from Jin. But Jin is just an example. If the lower orders are all behaving themselves too uppishly, you know, that's a challenge to the strict ladder, but it's more, it's more flexible under classes. So again, if we'd been in the 80s, so we'd have, progressive people would be talking about classes and it, it's a sort of looser, freer way of describing things. It slightly can, can slightly obscure the extent of poverty, especially if we talk about workers. In fact, there's enormous differences between the skilled workers, the unskilled workers, and the unemployed. And so, there, in fact, just to put the working class together can actually obscure certain things. But this is what was happening to the languages of class. Why do you think that we romanticise Georgian criminals, so highwaymen, smugglers? Why do we think of them as rogues today rather than the criminals they were? Oh, well, some of them were quite charming. But yes, in my view, it's historical distance. People love a rogue at a distance. So uh, to read that Horace Walpole was stopped outside London and robbed of his fob watch by a gentlemanly highwayman who quoted some Latin at him. You know, the, that all, all seems quite charming. But, of course, today we wouldn't like it if we were held up on the A30 <laughs> and robbed as we were trying to drive into London. So it is historical distance. And, again, there is a selective filter. So the people who did the most dire and repellent things are not romanticised, but the ones about whom not much is known, but, you know, the episode... Um, some uh, highwayman bantering with someone in a carriage. That's that's quite a romantic idea. And for my final question, how did the Georgians themselves feel about their era? Did they think they were living through a golden age or a time of decline? Aha. Uh-huh. I'm so glad you asked me that because one of the things I decided to do before writing my book was to make a trem- as large a collection as I could find of people in the time, not necessarily famous people, but saying or writing, this is an age of or a century of dot, dot, dot. Not writing history books and giving historical things, but just writing in their own letters and diaries and books. And I got about 700 all in all, which I then proceeded to subdivide and classify. But just to give you an example of the sort of thing I mean, uh, Thomas Turner, a Georgian shopkeeper, kept an intimate diary. And if things were going wrong, he would be saying, oh, what terrible times we live in. The nation's in decay and everything is going to the dogs. So I I get a lot of, I found a lot of quotations like that. But then a few days later, he'd be um, in a happier frame of mind and 
maybe reading some improving book and say, oh, what an era of light and progress we live in. So people don't have to be consistent. It's partly a question of mood. But what I pick, what I then did is classify the sorts of the variety of things that they praised or blamed. And really, again, I found this, I wasn't looking for it, but when I was classifying them, there's a broad distinction between the optimists and the pessimists. And the pessimists are, they may be, it may be about religious, spiritual, social, cultural, sexual degeneration. There's quite a lot of complaints about that, especially women getting up to terrible things. Or the nation in ruins, especially in the middle of a, a, a war, the 1790s, where Britain isn't doing too well against France. There's a most amazing outpouring of Jeremiads about how you know, the world is doomed, and especially Britain is doomed. So that some of this pessimism is national, some is religious, some is cultural, some is moral. And then there's a rival strand, and they they was it's pretty well fifty fifty between them. And I, you know, I was just looking; I didn't have any preset thing. I, I was just in the course of my reading. And the optimists were partly about the glory of Britain and the power of Britain. There's quite a lot of chest thumping of that sort. But there's also a liberal strand about the the power of education, of science, the image of light and liberation. So there's a lot going on there. And over time, the optimistic narrative is the one that's coming to the fore. You can always find pessimists in every generation, but the optimistic narrative is coming to the fore for two or three different reasons, all related. The power of Britain's trade around the world is is very sort of encouraging. Britain's triumphs, eventual triumphs in the wars, is especially after 1815, there's a lot of literature of self-congratulation, but also the spread of literacy, the spread of learning, scientific discoveries, Newton, Faraday. You know, people are the first steam engine. People are tremendously aware that they're living through a, a time of experimentation and invention. So the progress narrative is the one the, the word in the 18th century is improvement, but gradually progress comes to the fore. The, the, in, by the 19th century, the progress narrative is the dominant one, though, as I said, there's always some who can argue with it. And the progress narrative goes right up to uh, until the shock of the First World War. And then it tries its best to recover after that. But then the slump and the Second World War, and all the, you know, then it, that's when progress is finally knocked on the head as a sort of universal belief. And when I say universal, of course, this is specifically in Western Europe and North America, and there are all sorts of ironies to it, you know, plenty of ironies to it, and criticisms of things that need to be reformed. But interesting, of course, you know, that while some of the chess thumpers are saying Britain is great and, oh, it's all so wonderful, some of the reformers are saying, oh, well, in this age of enlightenment, we shouldn't be allowing dot, 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 you know, so they can use it to to call for reforms, which they do. So I, I stress the sort of, the tensions and excitements really between these varieties of points of view. And as I said, individuals can switch from one register to another if they feel in the mood. The tensions between traditions and change and whether change is for the good or change for the ill, these go on throughout, and it, it makes it an incredibly exciting 
period, source, of course, of some of our major problems today. This is when the first intensive use of fossil fuels begins. But hey, you know, the Georgians today would be deep in the debate about doing something about climate change. So they, they were causing deeds and misdeeds, but also at the same time debating them and trying to get a grip on them as well. It's such an exciting time. That was Penelope J. Caulfield. Her book, The Georgians, The Deeds and Misdeeds of 18th Century Britain, is published by Yale University Press. You can read a version of this interview in the February issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on the greatest monarchs in British history, the Eastern Front and early Roman Britain. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Ewart, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.